postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Happy Monday, guys. It is Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. Uh, we are smack in the middle of our Padanar series, Adventism for a Post Church Generation. And I want to dive in uh, very, very fast because. There's a lot that I want to cover in today's episode. And I'm also going to say this. Today's episode is going to be super duper spicy, you guys. Um, (laughs) Now, if you remember from the previous episode, uh, we concluded with a single question. And that question was, if this vision of Adventism that I've presented, right, this vision of Adventism deeply rooted in the concept of God as love, if this is true, then why has Adventism been so unloving to so many people? Uh, Why have our preachers been so legalistic? Uh, You know, where's the toxicity come from if we are indeed this holistic narrative of God's love that has basically, um, you know, taken the Arminian Uh, ethic or the Arminian concern for the character of God and his character of love to the next level. If, If that's who we are, if that's our identity, then where do we get some of the really ugly stuff that you see in our churches. Uh, so I want to I wanna explore that. That's going to be the main theme of today's episode. But I did have a question that I wanted to wrestle with a little bit and clarify uh, for those who were still sort of trying to figure out how the bits and pieces fit from the previous episode. So hopefully with this brief clarification, uh, things will make a little bit more sense and then we can get into this next question of where does the ugliness in Adventism come from, if not from its theological foundations? Um, so the question is, is a simple question, but it's actually also a difficult one to fully unpack in, in, in a brief sort of answer. Uh, and the question is this. Okay, so I get that Calvinism is rooted in this timeless picture of God and that that then gave birth to its predestination concept and and all that stuff we've already talked about, which basically concludes with this very coercive picture of God. And I get that Arminians were reacting to that and they wanted to centralize the love of God, which brought about, you know, uh, a re-emphasis on the freedom of the will and things like that. And that you've got these two different narratives. Um... And that Adventism comes out of that narrative, of that Arminian narrative, to really take it to the next level in a holistic, biblical, sort of systematic theology. But I still don't fully get how the sanctuary fits into all of that. Um, That's the question. So can you please explain exactly how does the sanctuary move Adventism uh, further along than other Arminian denominations have gone? Great question. Great question. Um, so I'm going to try and answer it as best as possible. And by the way, it's I got to be very clear here. Uh, what we're talking about, particularly when we're talking about theological foundations, is abstract. All right? It's abstract. Um, but the bottom line is that every single belief that gets enacted or materialized in the physical realm is rooted in an abstract ideal. Nothing happens in the physical realm that's not rooted in some sort of abstract ideal, at least when it comes to to human free will decisions. There is an abstract behind 
every concrete action. And so, you know, I, I explain that because sometimes people are like, oh, this theology stuff is so abstract and it's just, you know, I just, and I've talked to people like that before. They're like, oh, I'm just a practical man. I just like to do the practical things. Forget all the abstract stuff. Um, and, you know, that's okay. Uh, not all of us are really into um, abstract conversation and, you know, we're all wired differently. But the bottom line is that there's no such thing as someone who's purely practical everyone, the concrete actions that you manifest are rooted in some sort of an abstract ideal. Um, whether it's, you know, a religious one or not is, is not the point. But the point is every concrete action is rooted in an abstract ideal. And so, yeah, I think that there is value in discussing the abstract um, to some degree, uh, so long as we don't hunger down there and end up in an ivory tower far removed from everyday life then I think it's important to address the abstract, but then move on to the conversation of the concrete and how this manifests in concrete reality. So let me try and answer the question that way, from abstract, uh, blue, sorry, from abstract to, uh, to concrete. So how does the sanctuary actually help? Like, where does it actually fit into this? And again, we have to come back to Calvinism. Now, remember that in the sort of Calvinist conception of God, which is, by the way, rooted in Augustinian conception of God, what we're attempting to do is we're attempting to define theology based on God's nature, which is okay. That's what you're supposed to do. But the definition of God's nature in Augustinian Calvinist thought, really most of Protestant thought, is a definition that depends on Platonic um, categories. And so, for example, um, as we've already explored, that definition of God is that God is timeless, that he exists outside of time. And because he exists outside of time, then that Basically, you know, that's a, the mystery that we try and understand. And so for the Augustinian, for the Calvinist, um, for, for mo much of Protestant theology, the way in which you define timelessness is through Platonic philosophy. And in Platonic philosophy, timelessness basically means you can't experience before and after. You exist in an eternal frozen now. Everything is simultaneous. And therefore, anything that happens in, in history, in time, uh, cannot impact that which is outside of time. Now, this is so contrary to the biblical view that even Calvinists and Augustinians, uh, they, they have to allow some wiggle room for God to involve himself in history, because clearly in scripture, God's in history. But what they attempt to do is they attempt to limit that as much as possible, because God is not a historical being. Uh, he's, he's not impacted by time. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I believe it was, he, he's not impacted by your love. So if you love God, it's meaningless to him because nothing can act upon him as this being who lives in an eternal frozen state where everything is, you know, simultaneously now um, and there's no before and after. And, and, and so this God there, if there's a history in, in reality, then this God must script that history um, because, you know, the idea that he's going to look through the portals of time and, 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 and somehow discover <laughs> history is, is antithetical to the notion of a frozen sort of state, frozen now. Um, so basically, the, the bottom line, I want to keep this as basic as possible, because and this is the thing I'm struggling with, you guys, that some of this stuff is so philosophically complex. And I don't want to get into that because I do think that that's where you get like ridiculously abstract and it's almost pointless. So I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible. Um, but essentially, um, the, the bottom line is that a timeless being cannot interact with history. Right, that's the bottom line. It's impossible for a timeless being who exists in an eternal, frozen, simultaneous now to, to step into history where there is before and after. All right. Um, because, yeah, then you end up with all these contradictions like, who was God before he stepped into his history and who was he after? And there's, you know, other philosophical approaches that attempt to deal with that, like Molinism, which I'm not going to get into. Um, uh, that's a bit too much. But that's the bottom line. The bottom line in, in, in the sort of timeless view of God is that he, can, he cannot be simultaneously historical. Now, again, the Arminian movement didn't really contend with that. It, it just said, look, clearly the Bible says God is love and clearly that means we have free will. 
Um, and so let's focus on that. But it didn't really go back and, and try and sort of work out some of these things. Although guys like Roger Olson, if you want to Google Roger Olson, um, and you, you Google Roger Olson, uh, timelessness of God, for example, you'll see that he's done some work on this over the years. He's a very, very popular Arminian theologian today. Um, and, and there's a few others that, that you can find as well. But for the most part, as a movement, Arminianism never really dealt with that. Uh, and so what happens is when you get the Seventh-day Adventists, who aren't really Seventh-day Adventists at the time, they're, they're Millerites, and they've just experienced this great disappointment because of a misunderstanding of Scripture. Um, and, and they're pretty, uh, you know, the ones who stuck around are pretty committed to saying, look, whatever we figure out from Scripture, like whatever beliefs we have, they need to be squarely rooted in Scripture because they felt the pain uh, on an existential level of what it was like to have a belief system that wasn't fully grounded in scripture. And if you guys know your Adventist history to some degree, you know that the theology, the popular theology of the day was that the earth was the temple, right? Uh, the, the sanctuary. And so when Daniel said that the sanctuary would be cleansed, then they took this uh, popular theology and said, oh, the earth is going to be cleansed at the end of this period. And so this means that Jesus is coming back. Well, the sanctuary wasn't the earth. And it seems like a very sort of minor, almost unimportant point when you think of it in the grand scheme of everything else. But the point is that this minor, unimportant point, is the earth the sanctuary or is the sanctuary something else? Um, this minor, unimportant point caused a great deal of anguish and, and, and social rejection and economic instability. Uh, and again, uh, existential anxiety for those who had committed themselves to this, to this narrative. And so for those who stuck around, there was a definitely like a deep sort of like, Hey, if we're going to keep, you know, if we're going to stay in the word, if we're going to stay in the Bible, then whatever we construct from here on out, it's got to be rooted in scripture. Like, you know, because you know, when, when you, when you, take the abstract belief and it manifests in concrete reality and it turns out to have been false, it can cause a lot of damage. And, and that's what they were experiencing. So there was this deep, deep, deep existential commitment to saying, let's get back to scripture. Let's let scripture define itself and, and not have a sort of a third party over scripture through which we read scripture, like Plato, for example. Now, the, the history and the development of all that, guys, it's, it's too much uh, for me to, to sort of extrapolate on here. If anyone's interested, shoot me an email. I can give you some sources. can't think of them off the top of my head right now where you can read more and, and you know, get more information. But I want to move on uh, because the basic idea was that when you look at the sanctuary, what does the sanctuary communicate? Now, forget about the building, forget about the furniture, forget about all that stuff. The sanctuary as a theme, as an idea, it communicates one central reality. God in time. That's what it communicates, right? Um, let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them, right? This is God dwelling with Israel historically in time, experiencing before and after, right? God is there with his people. Uh, Jesus, you know, uh, the angel says you'll call his name Emmanuel because, um, you know, he, he's going to save his people from their, uh, God, you know, he's going to save his people from their sins. But what does the word Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. And so Jesus manifests the theme of the sanctuary in himself, where in himself he is God in human flesh, in history, in time, in space. He inhabited a racialized body, a physical somatic frame that was susceptible to the historical realities that are, we're susceptible to, like, you know, cold and heat and, 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 and sickness, you know. Uh, I'm sure in his 30 years, he caught the cold at least one time, you know. <laughs> like, and, and so this deeply historical God, and then this deeply historical God suffers, right? And, and, and he enters into this experience, real historical experience of suffering, physical experience of suffering. Um, and then we see the very end of the narrative of scripture that the Bible says that, um, you know, when, when the whole great controversy has ended, um, it basically says in Revelation 20 or 21, can't remember exactly right now, um, that 
you know, God is Revelation 21. It just, just hit me um, that, that God himself will be their people and he will be their God and they will be his people and he will be with them. Right. So this, this concept of God being with is really, really key because this with or, or what I refer to as the withness of God, that is sanctuary. That is the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the withness of God, the historical presence of God in time and space with the sentient created um, dimension. And so what this means is that whatever timelessness means, because it's clear from scripture that God isn't bound by time the way you and I are. Like we, we know that, like there's no disputing that. But the difference is that for the Calvinists and Augustinians, um, the timelessness of God or how the timelessness of God is defined doesn't come from scripture. It comes from Plato. All right. And so what you basically do is then you take Plato's definition of timelessness and it becomes a filter through which you read the rest of scripture. For Adventism, we, we, we get it. Like we get that God isn't, isn't bound by time like we are, but what does, so what does that exactly look like? What does it mean for God to be eternal? Right. Um, which is a more biblical term rather than timeless, right? What does it mean that he is eternal? Uh, we don't know because the Bible never attempts to define it. It never attempts to give us a philosophical extrapolation on what it looks like for God to inhabit eternity or, or, or you know, even, even trying to describe it is weird, right? So, so we have no idea. The Bible never attempts to define that. And so when you say, hey, God is timeless, therefore he can't experience before and after, what you're doing is you're stepped outside the Bible and you're using Greek platonic definition. The Bible never says God can't experience before and after. In fact, it's full of scenarios where God is experiencing before and after. Um, and, and, and the sanctuary is really the essence of that, that God is a historical being, that he wants to be with us and even even the act of creation itself and and God inhabiting time in the Sabbath and sanctifying time and and setting that day making that day holy like how does that work right um how, how do you how do you sanctify time like it's just it's weird in in a, especially in, in Protestant sort of classical Protestant theology the whole notion is is bizarre. Um, but it's, it's not bizarre in a Hebraic view because God is a God who is in time and, and he Sabbaths with us and he walks in the garden with us. And, and he's, he's the, he's, you know, he's the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of our fathers, right? He's the pillar of cloud, um, or, or, or fire by night and the cloud by day, you know, and, and, and every time the Hebrews in scripture speak of God, they don't speak of him in philosophical tones of, you know, um, trying to defend his existence of the unmoved mover or, or any, you know, the, the universal architect or any of those sort of things that you find in classical Greek apologetics. When they speak of God, they speak of God experientially, like he's the God of my fathers. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, he's the God who dislocated my hip while I was wrestling with him. And, you know, everyone else is like, who is this weird God who dislocated your hip, you know? Um, so it's, this is, this is the reality of God. He's a historical being. He's in time. He's, he's, he's somehow able to enter into the spatial experience of humanity, of created sentient humanity, physical humanity, and he journeys with us here. And that's what sanctuary means. And so when you take the sanctuary in scripture seriously, it removes you from a timeless view of God. Right? It completely removes you from that. And, and you have to reckon with the fact that if God is not timeless, if he is a historical being, uh, then, then, and that's what the sanctuary depicts, then how does that impact the way we understand all of scripture? But it's, it's deeper than that as well, because the sanctuary doesn't simply depict that God is a historical God. It, it depicts that God wants to be a historical God, right? That he wants to be with us. And the fact that the sanctuary on earth is, is just a replica or, or a, um, a sort of a type of a sanctuary in heaven means that this posture of God wanting to be historically with people transcends our 
own fallen history, right? Our own, you know, uh, experience here, terrestrial experience, this, this posture of God, this desire of God wanting to be with far transcends our terrestrial story. It's bigger than that. It's, it's an eternal posture. He, he wants to be with and, and he wants to do life with. And, and this in many ways also explains why Adventists believe that Jesus in the Old Testament is Michael the archangel. It's not that Jesus is an angel. Of course, Jesus is uncreated God of eternity. Like we believe that he's the uncreated God of eternity, but that Michael represents God sort of incarnating to the angels, if you can use the language. Um, God is entering into their time and space, and he's journeying with them as Michael. And so he does it again on earth when Jesus becomes a man, right? And, and so this is his eternal posture he wants to be with. And so once you have this sanctuary theme that God wants to be with, then you let go of the Greek philosophical categories because they don't match, right? They, 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 they're completely opposite. And now you can begin to reread scripture through this vision. And look, there's so much more to it than just that. I, I've just given you the basic bottom line foundational concept. But there's a lot more to it than that. But hopefully that helps at least give you an inkling on why the sanctuary makes such a big difference. And it's not simply believing or reading about the sanctuary in the Bible. And, and I hope that you get that true um, or clearly that Adventism isn't simply about believing or reading or explaining the sanctuary in the Bible. Uh, Advent, in Adventism, the sanctuary is not merely a feature of our belief system. The sanctuary is the lens, all right? That's the difference. So you got all these doctrines and the sanctuary doesn't isn't linearly sitting next to them, right? The sanctuary is a lens through which you see all of scripture. And so this is God's desire to be with us. This is his God as a historical being, God as as here with us. And 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 so this takes us out of the timeless sort of mystical um religious experience and places us into a historical relational religious expression. And and at the same time, um because God wants to be with us, and obviously we see that sin entered the world and separated us from God, then the sanctuary that God told the Israelites to build becomes a depiction on how he restores us back to withness with himself. Uh, and so the sanctuary on earth is this sort of a, a, a temporary play, um, a, a metaphor of how God is going to bring us back into oneness with himself. Uh, and, and that's sort of what that represents. And then obviously that, you know, really culminates in Jesus. He dies on the cross and the, you know, the temple, the curtains ripped in two. And it's like the thing that separated man from God is no longer there, right? In Jesus, we can be reconnected. We, the withness is secured in him. And it goes on and on. Anyways, um, I, I've got a whole other <laughs> episode to get to. So this, this took a lot longer than I, I was hoping, but hopefully that helps you understand, at least get a better understanding of how the sanctuary as a lens through which we interpret scripture makes such a gargantuan difference when it comes to Arminian theology. Because now we take this lens and we apply it to all of scripture and it reframes everything under this theme of God wanting to be with. So hope that helps. And now it's time for me to move on to what today's episode is actually supposed to be about. <laughs> Sorry that uh, it's taking me so long, you guys, but, but here we go. Um, the question that we asked last time was, okay, very cool. This sounds amazing, but why is Adventism so mean, right? Why is it so not loving to so many people when this is supposedly its theological contribution um, to, to our picture of God? I mean, shouldn't people who believe that uh, naturally be way more loving. And if, you know, if the abstract has a concrete manifestation, shouldn't the abstract picture of God that we hold as this God of witness have an abstract manifestation in the way in which we treat each other uh, with greater love and with greater passion and with greater oneness? But we just see division and we see all of this legalism and, and all of this judgmentalism. And, and really all we witness in our churches is more separation and, and, and infighting and just ridiculous, you know. Um, and you're absolutely right. If that is your question, 
Uh, it's an excellent question. So what I want to do today is I just want to do a quick historical trace that might help bring some clarity to this question. So let's begin. When Adventism was born, uh, a large portion of North Americans were already Christians. So you keep that in mind, right? The context was so different to what it is today. A large portion of North Americans, which is where Adventism was born in North America, uh, were already Christians. And if they weren't active church attenders, they were deeply impacted by Christian culture and Christian categories. And so, you know, you had, for example, the Second Great Awakening, which resulted in boy, so many conversions, and it was just beginning to wind down by the time Adventism was born. And and so as a result, Adventist preachers glossed over stuff everybody already knew. So it was like the gospel. Everybody knows the gospel. So let's not talk about that too much. Um, let's place a heavy focus on the more eccentric teachings of the church. And so among those teachings were things like the Sabbath. And so even though Adventism shared a view of the law, um, you know, the, the relevance of the law in the New Covenant that was identical with other churches, there remained disagreement on whether the Sabbath command applied to the first day of the week or whether it applied to the seventh day of the week. And so Adventism's focused, or Adventist preachers focused on that, you know, the Sabbath. Let's, let's clarify that. Um, and then, of course, you had this new way of interpreting the Bible that began to gain popularity in, in the 1870s, and this was dispensationalism, and it taught that Christians aren't the law under the law in any sense. So it was kind of antinomian, right? It was a, a systematic way of um, seeing the Bible through anti-law glasses. And so it's like, hey, Christians aren't under the law in any sense whatsoever. So Adventists, of course, they, they saw this as, as dangerous and reacted to it perhaps a bit too much. The, the yeah, reactionary theology probably tended to go in the opposite extreme. And, and to make matters more interesting, there were certain laws requiring the observance of Sunday around at the time as, as a day of rest. And so these were being enforced by local governments and that impacted the, the consciousness of early Adventism as well. So when you think about this context, what, what really ended up happening is Adventist preachers and evangelists came to focus almost exclusively on themes like the law and its relation to end time events. Um, now, you know, early Adventists were definitely, you know, social justice warriors. They, they were against empire. They were against tyranny. They were against coercion. And the way in which the Sabbath was understood, Ellen White even has a comment that, um, you know, the, the mark of the beast and, and, and things like the co coercion and tyranny um, and, you know, the United States being, you know, a, a lamb-like uh, dragon, uh, that it was actually the, the act of slavery that America was participating in was, was a sign of its lamb-like dragon-ness, essentially, right? So, so they, they had a very social vision of these things. Um, but of course, the problem is that when you think everybody around me knows about the gospel already, so I'm only going to focus on, you know, protesting empire and preaching about the Sabbath and, and, and things like that, then emerging generations of Adventists, the, the kids, the next generation who's raised within this context that never talks about the gospel because everybody else gets it, um, those kids are raised on a extremely heavy law diet and hear very little, if any, of the gospel. And so over the time, the church came to lose sight of the gospel almost completely. Um, and Ellen White herself noted that during these years, many had lost sight of Jesus. And you could read a lot about this if you look up 1888 in the materials that she wrote and things like that. It's, it's all there. Um, now, Adrian Zahid captured this well in, in an article he wrote. Um, he said this, Sermons that once were preached with vigor and the freshness of new discovery had by the 1880s grown, as Ellen White put it, as dry as the hills of Gilboa. The emphasis had shifted from what Christ was doing for us to what we could do for him. In other words, the, the message of righteousness by faith had become righteousness by the law. End quote. Now, in 1888, um, some of you might be like super familiar with this, um, uh, and some of you it might be new, but in 1888, the message of grace was reintroduced to Adventists by two preachers, um, E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones, in what would become the most historic conference in Adventist 
history. And this was the 1888 General Conference. And the conversation turned explosive when Wagner disagreed with the what had become the traditional Adventist interpretation of the law in Galatians being only the ceremonial law. According to Wagner, Galatians was talking about the Ten Commandments, not just the ceremonial law. And so this view introduced a huge rift for the church, which for three decades had interpreted that law as the ceremonial law. And according to Adventist leaders, that belief was key in protecting the view that the law had not been done away with. And so there was this huge tension. Oh, you guys are here to destroy the law with all your grace talk and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it just it did not go well. So as a result, Jones and Wagoner stood against the legalism that had taken hold of the church. But it wasn't overt legalism that Jones and Wagoner were confronting Adventists still had enough Christian Protestant tradition in them to avoid believing that a person could be saved by works. Instead, Adventists tended to emphasize the law so much that grace, while never denied, became a non-essential point. And that's the key, all right? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any point in Adventist history where people were running around saying, we are saved by the law. Uh, everyone at any point would have always said, oh no, we're saved by grace only. But when you overemphasize the law over grace, you're not denying grace, but it almost becomes a, a moot point. And that's basically what happened. Um, so when Jones and Wagoner entered the scene, they preached Christ and, and, and Christ alone. Christ is the only hope. They de-emphasized the law and, and they lifted up Jesus. And of course, uh, for those of you who are familiar with this, because this is just a really brief summary, um, Ellen White actually stood by their side and expressed her support. And there's some statements, you, you can find them in the book, I'm not going to read them. Um, but basically, Ellen White was really into this whole Jesus is the center, you guys, let's get away from this law, 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 law stuff, and let's put Jesus back in the center. Um, now, many Adventists at the time, unaccustomed to a Christ-centered approach to their worldview, interpreted the preaching of Jones and Wagoner as dangerous. And they feared that if it was fully embraced, it would actually destroy Adventism. Can you imagine that? Like Jesus, if we fully embrace Jesus, he'll, it'll destroy Adventism. Sounds a whole lot like what was happening in the first century where the Pharisees were afraid that Jesus would be the end of the nation. You remember that verse where they said, better for one man to die for the nation than the whole nation to perish? Um, this is basically what was happening in 1888. It was like, oh, Jesus is too dangerous. Um, so they thought it would destroy Adventism. So they didn't simply reject Jones and Wagoner. They even rejected Ellen White's support and Ellen White herself. Um, and some were even claiming that Ellen had in her old age been led astray by the young preachers. Now, to make matters worse, the General Conference president of the day, along with one of the church's top theologians, fought vehemently against Jones and Wagner and held that the new, and I'm quoting here, the new interpretation undermined Adventism's traditional position on the end time importance of the law of God, end quote. Now, at this point, we can begin to see signs that the God is love slash with us glasses that Adventism was based on, the sanctuary glasses, had been replaced with law glasses instead. Now, that's a huge key, because by this point, let me repeat that again, because it's so central. By this point, the sanctuary was no longer the interpretive lens for all the scripture for Adventists. The law had become the interpretive lens. And so we can begin to understand how Adventism has become so ugly, even though it's rooted in something so beautiful, is because the thing that it's rooted in, this sanctuary vision of God, uh, this holistic sanctuary lens through which we understand scripture, it, it can be easily replaced. It can be easily removed and you put something else there. And so for the early Adventists around the 1800s, it was the law. The law had become the new lens. It was no longer the sanctuary. The sanctuary was now understood through the law. The law had become the central theme. Um, and, you know, such a system is bound to lead to the legal Christless religion that Ellen White was reacting against. So, in contrast to Ellen White, many of the leading brethren, if I use that old word, I'm reading a quote here, so um, they had heard that sermons delivered by Jones and Wagoner in Minneapolis, and they were irritated by them. 
Now, following the general conference or this controversial conference, uh, Ellen White dedicated more time to emphasizing Jesus as our only hope for time and eternity, as she, as she herself put it. And many in, in the church began to see the light, but it was clear that two diverse Adventisms were now emerging. One saw Jesus and his work in the sanctuary as central in the entire narrative of salvation, and the other saw the same story primarily through the lens of the law. Now you fast forward over 60 years and Adventism had undergone some pretty major changes, including the death of Ellen White in 1915 and the arrival of a new and rigid method of relating to the Bible known as fundamentalism in uh, 1919. And the remaining law culture in the church combined with the rigidity of fundamentalism Wow, that proved to be a really, really bad mix. It had this, basically, to use Paul's word, it had a bewitching influence. And so the combination of this law um, law interpretation, this law lens, and this fundamentalism gave birth to an era marked by a legalistic style of argumentation and behavior that fed the flames of narcissism, sectarian ideology, and irrational applications of lifestyle standards that proved impossible to defend from scripture as new generations emerged to question the status quo, but it had become deeply ingrained in what it meant to be an Adventist. And so there was this constant tension um, that, that just, you know, through these generations. And so during this time, we began to see myths regarding the ministry application and proper use of Ellen White, among other exaggerations of Adventist thought. Uh, these things were developing and, and becoming quite strong. Um, and, and you can think back to the days when it was like, it's the Sabbath, and if you're going to go to the lake, you can only put your feet in up to your ankles because anything more than that, you're breaking the Sabbath. And it's like, you know, really? Like, that's so pharisaical. It almost blows my mind that they couldn't see it, that they couldn't see themselves uh, basically reenacting what the Pharisees were like in Jesus' day. Um, but that's, you know, that's what was happening. You know? and, and, and so what this did is it set the groundwork for the next explosion in the 1950s when a series of discussions began between Adventist leaders and Calvinist evangelicals who wanted to know from the horse's mouth what do Adventists actually believe. And that discussion was published in a book known as Questions on Doctrine. Huge, 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 huge historical um, scene there. Um, I'm not going to go into all those details. You can research a lot more. But after the book's publication, the two Adventisms collided once more. Uh, some claimed that the book was a proper reflection of Adventist thought. Others considered it a departure from Adventist thought. And among those who opposed it was a conservative theologian named M.L. Andreessen. And Andreessen felt that the authors of Questions on Doctrine had misinterpreted Adventism in their dialogues with the Calvinists and expressed his concerns to them. But the conversation between Andreessen and his colleagues didn't go very well. Uh, and so, as a result, Andreessen took it upon himself to expose the church leaders and their grand conspiracy um, accusing them of changing SDA theology in order to pacify the Calvinists. And the result was an all-out war, you guys. Um, and it was through the attention that came through the controversy that Andreessen came to promote what became one of the most popular narratives in Adventist thought, last-generation theology. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little bit now. So, yeah, basically, as this whole scuffle is going on between Andreessen and, and some of these leaders, Andreessen places himself on the platform of Adventist orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, he's teaching this last generation theology as true Adventism. And that becomes essentially the, um, you know, this is what real Adventists are all about. And those leaders over there are not to be trusted. And, and this is where a lot of the distrust of church leadership um, really, you know, sort of goes back to as well. Now, while last generation theology held a lot in common with classic Adventist thought, its greatest departure was that it interpreted the Adventist narrative through the glasses of perfectionism instead of the sanctuary. So this resulted in morphing Adventist theology into a man-centered story 
which held that in order for Jesus to return, Adventists had to first overcome all their sins and reach a point of sinless perfection where they would no longer need a mediator to intercede for them. And proponents of this view also obsessed over themes such as the human nature of Christ, strict standards of Sabbath keeping, most of which were rational and bizarre, um, vegetarianism or really veganism, uh, dress reform, uh, end time events, and the need for a complete sinless perfection. Uh, in short, they replaced the Adventist sanctuary glasses with a fanatical version of Wesleyan holiness theology and reinterpreted Adventism through it. And the result saw many Adventists returning to a pharisaical mode of relating to the Bible, as if it wasn't already happening, right? It, was, it just made it worse. So you go from sanctuary glasses to these law-centered glasses by, 18, uh, by uh, yeah, 1888, and then you get the fundamentalist glasses that are added to that by 1919. And then by the 1950s, now you're having the, the perfection glasses that are now sort of being added to that. And so the sanctuary is still central in that theme. You know, it's, it's, it's emphasized and it's talked about a lot. And Jesus even wrote a whole book on the sanctuary. But everything sort of becomes interpreted through the lens of this final perfect generation. That becomes the glasses through which everything is read. Not God wants to be with us. Not God's love and his passion and his desire to, to journey with us in history and be close to us. Th those are no longer the glasses. Now it's, we need a final perfect generation for the great controversy to end. That becomes the new set of glasses through which we read all of scripture. So for example, Adventist youth raised under this way of thinking will often relate to how they were taught that it was a sin again to go beyond the knees into a beach or a lake on Sabbath. So long as the water stayed under the knees, they were not sinning. If it went over, they were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Um, regardless of how ridiculous it might sound today, although there's still a few people out there, uh, maybe more than a few who think this way, um, th this teaching appealed to the spirit of Adventism, which in 1888 had sided with a law-centered vision. And it was the majority. So this, this really appealed to the culture. It was like, oh yeah, more law, more rules. Yeah, you know, it's like, wow, that's some deep pathology. But anyways, the SDA church never officially, as, as an institution, never accepted last generation theology in any official capacity. However, last generation theology became the glasses through which the majority of conservative Adventists read the Bible. And those who shared in the spirit of the men and women who argued that an emphasis on Jesus in 1888 would lead Adventism astray, who pushed for the adoption of fundamentalism into the Adventist framework, and who in the 1950s sided with Andreessen in attacking SDA leadership and accusing it of apostasy, went on to promote LGT or the LGT brand as the only true version of Adventism. However, many others rejected these developments. So the undercurrent of division from 1888 manifested itself with greater force. Many followed Andreasen as though his teachings represented the true historic theology of the pioneers and came to view themselves as historic Adventists, while others rejected his teachings. And to this day, one could say that the mainstream SDA church is primarily split into two camps. Number one, the Andreasens, and number two, everybody else. Now, new generations were now raised with a similar narrative as the pre-1888 Adventists, one that emphasized the law, judgment, and apocalyptic themes to such a degree that Jesus, while never denied, was minimized. And the new mantra of the Adventist voice was perfection, 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 or Christ will not come. Legalism spread. Lack of assurance of salvation dominated the lives of the members. A fanatical approach to the health message and end-time events demoralized the pulpits and churches. Independent ministries promoting Andreasen's theology published magazines, hosted programs, and offered resources that continued to feed the legalism and spread distrust of church leadership. This distrust of church leadership then fit in really nicely with a conspiracy theory mindset that was being emphasized in the way in which Daniel and Revelation were, were being preached. And so the stage was set for the next great explosion or the great divide in the Adventist church. And this was the Desmond Ford crisis. 
Now, Adrian Daid, um, he summarized it really well when he wrote this. Decades of teaching members to prepare for the judgment had led many to develop an unhealthy fear of it. Dr. Desmond Ford, a preeminent Australian theologian, brought to the attention of the church his rejection of the sanctuary doctrine as a foundational pillar of Adventism. He replaced it instead with the soteriological vision of Protestant theology, depicting his own perspective as a solution to the fear that people felt regarding the judgment. He emphasized the assurance we could have by knowing the essence of the gospel. End quote. Although other Adventist theologians at the time were coming to terms with the gospel and rejecting the influence of LGT and its perfectionistic glasses, I'm thinking of guys like Edward Heppenstall and, and many others, uh, Ford pushed ahead with the belief that the problem with Adventism had to do with the sanctuary doctrine itself. However, and I guess here's my point, it, it was never the sanctuary doctrine that was problematic, it was the way in which it had been reinterpreted through the law and through perfectionism. And it was this foundation of legalism and fundamentalism that created the context for Ford to have the impact that he had. So Mike Manea, for example, could say that had it not been for Andreasen's heretical influence, it's highly unlikely that Ford's apostasy would have resonated with anyone else in the church, end quote. So again, Ford's solution, and this happened around the 1980s, so if you're listening to this and you're young, you probably never even heard of this stuff, you never even heard of this guy, but this history really sets the stage for a lot of the stuff that we deal with as millennials and Zeds in the Adventist church today, so it's, it's important to know it. Um, now, Ford's solution to the tortured consciences of Adventists everywhere was to emphasize the assurance of salvation and reject the sanctuary doctrine, which he saw as an assurance killer, and the church was rocked to his core. All right, like many members and pastors abandoned ship, critics pummeled it from the outside with questions that demanded answers, and the Adventist mythology born out of the unholy union of legalism and fundamentalism finally came crumbling down. In reaction to the decades of legalism and the influence of Ford, a new Adventism began to emerge to counter the law culture. Thankfully, this new Adventism wasn't afraid to admit its limitations. It wasn't afraid to wrestle with the difficult questions and to uplift Jesus no matter the cost. Through the influence of this new Adventism, the era of legalism and fundamentalism began to meet its end. Again, not entirely. There will always be pockets of it till Jesus comes, but it's nowhere near what it used to be. Uh, depending on where you are geographically, I should add, by the way. <laughs> um... But there was one fatal flaw with this new Adventism, and that is that as wonderful as it was, it was too reactionary to the historic camp. Rather than restoring the sanctuary glasses that led Adventism to a whole Bible view of God's love, this reactionary new Adventism made the assurance of salvation its new set of glasses. And so basically it emphasized the gospel, but downplayed and at times rejected foundational aspects of Adventism's eccentric narrative. And so the results appeared to be twofold. Uh, on the one hand, you had former Adventists who returned to the church and a new generation was raised with Christ at the center of their worldview. But on the other hand, those who dug deep enough discovered that they had little in common with classical Adventism. And many found themselves unable to reconcile their grace-centered theological lens with some of Adventism's core beliefs, which they still saw through the lens of perfectionism. And so in the end, many mistakenly concluded that Adventism simply wasn't compatible with the gospel. And as a result, studies began to indicate that more and more church members were leaving because they had changed their beliefs. Others disconnected from the unique teachings or attempted to undermine them from the inside, but the most common trend was simply to minimize their relevance. And so two major studies conducted by the church identified that among Adventist youth in North America, core Adventist teachings like the sanctuary, the remnant church, found less acceptance than widely accepted Adventist teachings like the gospel, creation, and the Sabbath. So in short, while this new reactionary Adventism has succeeded in restoring a gospel Jesus-centered vision to Adventism, it had underplayed, misunderstood, and at times opposed its whole Bible approach to the love of God. So here's a brief overview of what we've explored just to kind of 
because there was a lot there. So I want to try and maybe clarify, put, put the cards neatly down on the table. So number one, you've got classical Adventism, which began with this God is love with us sanctuary, right? That's, that's where the theology begins. That's his presupposition. God is love. He's with us. That's the sanctuary. And, and this presupposition was used to interpret the entire Bible to arrive at a complete system of truth that celebrated the centrality of Jesus and the beauty of God's character of love in history. This is classical Adventism. Then after classical Adventism came pre-1888 Adventism, which replaced the sanctuary glasses with the law of God. So they basically reinterpreted Adventism's complete system of truth through the lens of the law and end time events. Jesus and his sanctuary were reinterpreted via the new law glasses. So now you had all the legalism. That's pre-1888 Adventism. Then you have historic Adventism, which took over where pre-1888 Adventism left off, and they replaced the sanctuary glasses with character perfection. And so they reinterpreted Adventism's complete system of truth through the lens of perfectionism and end-time events. And that's where you had all this weird, crazy stuff going on in the 80s. And then finally, we arrive at reactionary Adventism. And this is the Adventism post-1980s that reacted to the decades of legalism by rejecting the law-centered perfectionistic presuppositions. It made the assurance of salvation the new glasses used to read the Bible and consequently downplayed and at times rejects entirely Adventism's complete system of truth derived from its sanctuary focus. So where are we today? Right, because that was just a good brief little historical overview. Where are we today? In the midst of all of these developments, it's clear that what has been lost is the sanctuary narrative that gave Adventism a complete system of truth centered on Jesus. Those who continue to promote what they refer to as historic conservative Adventism view the entire narrative of scripture through the glasses of character perfection and the law. Uh, and, and, and even then, it's a sort of an imperial imposed perspective on the law. Those who promote a gospel-centered brand tend to be so reactionary to the conservatives that they downplay anything that's not salvational. Instead, they see the entire story through the presupposition of assurance of salvation. For them, so long as this is understood, nothing else really matters. And what both camps fail to realize is that they're both using man-centered glasses to interpret the story of scripture, whereas the early Adventist sanctuary presupposition held that it was God's character of love and not mankind that was the central interpretive theme. And in both cases, the sanctuary God of early Adventism that provided the church with this holistic picture of God's love unheard of in, in classical Christian history has been forgotten. The conservatives continue to promote this rigid and legal view of God, whereas the reactionaries continue to promote the same incomplete narrative of God's love found in other Arminian denominations. Now, you add to this fundamental issue the myriad of other theological and cultural challenges that the church is currently divided over, and you just end up disoriented. And it's in this context that the church currently finds itself. So I'm going to wrap this episode up. Now, we're not done. We're not done. Because in the next episode, we're going to talk about, all right, where do we go from here? Right? This is Adventism for a post-church generation. Where do we go from here? <laughs> so we're, we're going to dig into that in the next episode. Um, but here's the thing. If Adventism is, at its essence, the most complete understanding of the love of God in the Christian world, why is this so non-loving to so many people? Why have our preachers tended to emphasize a scary picture of judgment, perfectionistic ideologies, and quite frankly, legalistic and man-centered theology? Why are so many of our churches cold and dead? And the answer can be narrowed down to this. We have forgotten our story. The legalism that took over has resulted in a sectarian and narcissistic culture of elitism and holier-than-thou personalities. The beauty of Adventism has been adulterated by this foreign worldview that has in many ways cast down the sanctuary. That God-with-us narrative has been morphed into a God-against-us theology comparable only to the errors of the medieval church. The trail of broken spirits, you guys, the trail of wounded sojourners and demoralized youth that follows us 
cannot be excused in any way. This law-centered, perfection-centered vision of Adventism is disgusting. In reaction, others have come to the defense of Adventism by replacing perfectionism as a set of glasses with assurance. And while they have succeeded at restoring the assurance of salvation lost in the eras of legalism, they've unwittingly assumed that themes like the law of God, prophecy, end-time events, etc. are staples of an old and worn-out legacy of legalism. And the result has been a new generation of Adventists, and listen to me carefully here because I love new generation of Adventists. That's what I'm all about. I'm all about the new generations. And I, and I recognize this episode is probably going to tick off a bunch of the older generations. I love you guys too. But um, I really, I really want to speak to the heart of the new generations. And here's the thing. The new generations of Adventists that I encounter today are generally more concerned with their personal assurance than they are with the character of God as revealed in every theme of Scripture. And so things like the health message, the prophetic gift, and the end times narratives are either ignored, rejected, or unknown. And in all of this, the unique position of Adventism as a holistic God is love narrative unheard of anywhere in the Christian world remains in the background. And I, I want to make this really clear because I love you guys. I want to make this really clear. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is not about how comfortable you feel. The gospel isn't about placating your conscience. Does the gospel deliver us from fear? Yes. Does the gospel give us assurance of salvation? Absolutely. Are those things absolutely essential to a proper relationship with God and with this world? Yes, undoubtedly. But the gospel is about so much more than that, you guys. It's not about just giving you assurance so you can tick the box. All right, I guess I'm going to heaven someday and, 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 and that's it. No, the gospel, the gospel is about God recreating the cosmos. It's about God recreating humanity. It's about God taking the empires of this world and annihilating them and replacing them with a new kingdom and a new society and a new civilization that moves to the rhythms of love. And how is God going to accomplish that? How is God going to fulfill this grand synthesis for the universe? How is God going to take humanity that inhabits separation and selfishness and restore the cosmos back to oneness with his heart? How is he going to accomplish that? Well, those are the questions that are answered in all of these deep, profound, prophetic themes that we see in Scripture. And so if we ignore that because it's not salvific or because it's somehow legalistic, we're missing out on this holistic picture, on this social, terrestrial, and cosmic picture of justice and, and restoration and healing and oneness. And so I, I want to challenge you guys, like Jesus is everything and his love is everything and assurance, you know, all this legalism stuff, oh man, it, it, it makes me sick just as much as it makes you guys, but it doesn't mean we got to throw everything else out. Because if we understand that all of scripture is to be understood through the sanctuary, through this theme of God wanting to be with us, we can revisit every single one of those themes and find in them a celebration of his heart. And that's really what it's all about. All right, guys, I'm going to end there. Um, in the next episode, we're going to talk about like, where do we go from here, right? Where do we go from here? And it's going to be absolutely amazing because now that we have deconstructed Adventism and we have reconstructed it in a more naked, raw sense, now we can ask the question, how do we reframe this for a post-church society? Now, as we wrap up, I'm going to give you some questions. Now, remember, you're supposed to be listening to these with somebody. So if you're listening to these by yourself, I'm mad at you, man. I'm mad at you. You're supposed to listen to this with someone so you can talk with them after because it's all about community, you guys. It's all about community. It's not just information to be lodged in your cranium, all right? Um, I, I get it. Sometimes it's hard. But if you can, here, here are some questions you can discuss. Number one, 
Have you been exposed to any of the ideas explored in this chapter? And I'm referring to sort of the bad ones, you know, the legalism, the perfectionism. Have you been exposed to that? How have they impacted you or the people you know in the church? Number two, how do you feel about the historical tendency in Adventism to replace the sanctuary lens with man-centered ideas? Like legalism, perfectionism, assurance. Number three, is it clearer after exploring the history how a movement based on the love of God could lose its way? Like, do you, do you get that now? Like, is it, is it a bit clearer? Talk about that. Number four, I've got five questions this week. Number four, what does this history say to us about the importance of keeping Jesus and this sanctuary theme at the center? What does it say to us? And final question, how can you begin bringing Jesus back into the center of your experience and the life of your church? All right, guys, talk about that in community. Talk about that with your friends. Wrestle, challenge, explore. And if there's something in this episode or really if any, in any of the episodes that you've disagreed with, I want to invite you. Don't get too hung up on it. I'm not perfect. I'm not infallible. Um, so, hey, you know, I probably did say something dumb at some point. But don't get too hung up on it. Focus on the main theme that we're looking at here of understanding what it is that Adventism has been called to say and in the next episode, we're going to look at how we can now begin reframing this in a way that's going to be meaningful for the post-church age. Take care and God bless.